going to be in Psalm 119, very end of the last two sections. Today we're going to wrap up our study in the psalm. And, you know, it's the longest psalm in Scripture, so we've been in it for a bit this summer. Uh, as we've made our way through it, we've seen that it was written with great attention to detail, of course. Uh, there's purpose, there's meaning in everything that's being written, which might seem obvious because this is Scripture, right? But it wasn't always Scripture. Simply the effort of uh, a person or a group of people who wrote songs for worship. And in this case, it's a song that was used for teaching as well. Uh, with the, the Hebrew alphabet being, you know, at each uh, section of eight verses. Uh, and then there's it's poetry. I'm sure there was music involved. The underlying theme of the whole thing is the, the love for God's Torah, which is at the heart of Jewish culture. And for Jewish people, knowing and living the Torah was everything, the, the law of God. It was the meaning of life. It was the point of everything that they did. And this psalm really seems to sort of spring from that way of thinking. Now, one of my favorite movies is the musical Fiddler on the Roof. I don't know if any of y'all have seen that. Um, it's, I love it. I'm not telling you to go see it. I'm just saying I love it. Uh, but it begins with the main character, uh, Tevye, who's this Jewish man living in Russia in the, uh, during the revolution, the Re Russian Revolution. Uh, and he's trying to explain why Jewish people do all the things that they do. And in the end, he chops it up to tradition. He states, we have traditions for everything, how to eat, how to sleep, even how to wear clothes. For instance, we always keep our heads covered and always wear a little prayer shawl. This shows our constant devotion to God. You may ask, how did this tradition start? I'll tell you. I don't know. <laughs> but it's a tradition. Because of our traditions, everyone knows who he is and what God expects him to do. And that sort of encapsulates the whole idea. Now, we have traditions, too. They might not be as sort of pronounced, but like when you come into a sanctuary, you take your hat off, right? That's a tradition. That's not said necessarily, like take your hat off when you go into the sanctuary. It doesn't say that. But we do it. We hang our hats outside. I mean, that's just how it works. So, or, you know, there's, there can be others greeting each other with a handshake or a hug. That's, that's a tradition here. If you were in Japan, you wouldn't do that. You would bow. So there's different traditions, you know, wherever you are. As we come to the end of this psalm, I think what we've seen, the Jewish tradition of honoring God's Torah law, sort of take the stage front and center throughout. And then we've also seen how Jesus became the fulfillment of God's Torah law, and how for us, tradition is not the guiding factor in our lives, it's our relationship with Him. So we're going to keep that in mind today as we look at these final 16 verses and, and see what they have for us. So follow along with me, if you will, in Psalm 119. We're going to begin in 161. Princes persecute me without cause. 
but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Let my cry come before you, O Lord, and give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you and deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. And God bless the reading of his word. Okay. Verse 162. Y'all know that we're not going to cover every single thing in here. We don't have time. So things that I've already covered, I'm trying to really hone in on the things that we kind of haven't hit, hopefully, a little bit. So in verse 162, the psalmist rejoiced at the word of the Lord and considered it like finding great spoil. That's a, that's a very interesting word choice there. The Hebrew word there is shalal, and it means spoil or plunder, and it carries the connotation of the looting that takes place after a battle is won, where people go through the battlefield and they find the swords or shields or other, maybe even gold, who knows, all the stuff that's still useful and they take it. Uh, the idea being that they're able to take away something that is useful, something that wasn't theirs to begin with, but it is now because of the battle. Now, it's interesting that the writer would choose this word because it clearly reveals that a battle has been fought and won. The people singing this song knew this. They had seen God prevail for them firsthand. Even the fact that they were free was evidence of the Lord coming to their aid and rescuing them. And he did this because of his promise to never leave them or forsake them. In light of this, the songwriter rejoiced in the word of the Lord, likening it to some treasure found on the battlefield. In Matthew 13, 44, Jesus talked about God's kingdom in a similar way, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, and he covered it up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In both situations, the treasure is in a field waiting to be found. And this seems like such a weird way to talk about something so valuable, something that people might just stumble upon randomly. But we have to realize that part of what makes God's promise beautiful is that it can be found by anyone. It can be discovered and treasured. And while the psalmist was referring to the Torah law of God being rediscovered and valued by the Jewish people after God had released them from their exile, 
we know that this is really about Jesus. We can't forget the idea of there being a battlefield where there is a decisive victory that has been won. For the ancient Jewish people, this was about God's victory over their enemies and freeing them from their slavery. For us, it's about Jesus' victory over sin and death. He has defeated them. And the spoils of war are that we have been freely offered eternal life. Anyone can find it. Anyone can rejoice in what Jesus has done for them and have a relationship with him as their Savior and King. Anyone. There's no, there's no clauses on who can come to Jesus. And the thing is, many of us have found Holy Spirit opened our eyes to what has been right in front of us the whole time. And now because we have found it, we should be telling others and pointing them toward it as well because there's more than enough to go around. Knowing Jesus and sharing an eternal life through Him isn't something we hoard. It's not something we keep to ourselves. It's something that changes us and makes us more loving and more kind and more compassionate. And if there isn't evidence of these things in our lives, it, it seems like maybe we found something else in that field. And this can be a hard concept for us to grasp living in our Western culture where we are so preoccupied with ownership and privacy and independence and all that kind of stuff. Almost like the battle cry of our culture would be, go find your own field. And go find your own treasure. Something like that. But that's not the way of Jesus. And if we claim to trust in and follow him, our lives need to look like his. And that brings us back to passage that I mention all the time. Philippians 2, 5-8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The king of all creation, who had every right to stay where he was, got up from his throne, humbled himself, and became one of us in order to show us the treasure out in the field, to point the way, and to lead us through the door to the good pasture where we are safe and secure from all harm. We sang in that song, the hymn, a few minutes ago, What have I to dread? And what have I to fear? leaning on the everlasting arms. I have peace complete with my Lord so near, leaning on the everlasting arms. In one, verse 164, the psalmist wrote that they praised the Lord seven times a day. Now, according to Hebrew traditions, also known as halakha, they are obligated to pray three times a day, morning, afternoon, and evening. That's the regular expectation. So where does this seven times come from? That seems extra. Why did the psalmist write this? 
Well, in Hebrew thinking, seven is the number of completion or fullness. Interestingly, it's also tied to the idea of rest through the Sabbath day. And I'm really looking forward to that study, as I've said, but for now we need to think of the number seven in terms of how it's being used right here. For example, in, in, uh, in Scripture, we know that the first sentence in Scripture is seven words long. Not in English, mind you, so if you're counting out, you would have ten words in English. But in Hebrew, it's seven. And I'm going to try to say them, I'll speak a little tongues here for you. Bereshit bara Elohim et hashamayim ve'et haretz. Seven words. Didn't sound like seven words, did it? But that's seven words. Now, is that just a coincidence that the, the whole thing would start with seven? There's seven paragraphs in the first creation narrative that that's a part of. Beginning in Genesis 1-1 and ending in Genesis 2-3 where we reach the seventh day when God rests. Is that a coincidence? I mean, I don't think so. I think there's a pattern being established by uh, whoever was writing Genesis 1 and 2 and, and the different things that are being shown there. And we may not recognize these sorts of patterns because of our, you know, we're not, our eyes aren't trained to look into Hebrew culture, ancient Hebrew culture. But once we know what we're looking for, it starts to show up everywhere, right? We begin to see it all over the place. And so when we come back to verse 164, and we find the psalmist praising God seven times a day, the connection to both creation and completion becomes clear. And then we add in the, the connection to God's Torah law, and then by extension to Jesus. And we have found ourselves standing at the foot of a cross that's empty on that Saturday as the king of all creation rested in the tomb. And then on Sunday morning, we stand in an empty tomb looking out on a new creation that has already begun and will one day be brought to its fullness when Jesus returns. Now, how many of us stop to praise God about that kind of stuff even once a day? How many of us praise God at morning, afternoon, and evening? How many praise God seven times a day? Or all through the day? I mean, maybe we're too busy. Maybe we're too distracted by all the things we have going on, all the stuff that's on our plate. But isn't God worthy of our praise? Isn't the Lord good? Doesn't he provide for us? Does the sun keep coming up? Do the seasons keep changing? Does the rain keep falling, hopefully where it's needed? Aren't these things sustained by the will and power of our King? I mean, are, are we all sitting here right now taking breath into our lungs as we consider all of this? The great mercy of the Lord allows and sustains all of this. Then shouldn't we praise God as many times as our breath allows? As many times as we're made aware? Shouldn't we live in a constant state of praise to some level? Not that we're always down on our knees or anything like that, but just constantly recognizing God 
in the things that have been created. And the idea is that whatever it is we are doing through the course of our day, we are doing it with praise in our hearts, thankfulness in our hearts. And when we do, I think that's how we will experience the great peace that we see in verse 165. But for us, that means the great peace of those who love Jesus, right? And love isn't simply a mental ascent where we think happy thoughts about Jesus or even life after death. To love is to move. It's to grow. It's to take action. Love is a verb. When we love someone, we act on our thoughts and feelings. And when it comes to Jesus, loving him means doing what he does. If we follow him and do what he does, we will find peace. Because that's where his way leads. It's so odd how so many people claim they want peace, but they aren't willing to turn their lives over to him. To follow him through the door to the good pasture where peace can be found. And there are plenty of voices out there offering peace, but when it comes down to it, they're empty and hollow. It's just like what the prophet said in Jeremiah 8:11. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. <clears throat> to find true peace, we have to follow the only one who can rightfully offer it. We have to lay down control of our lives and follow the way of Jesus. But we tend to sort of bristle at not being in control, at owing anything to anyone, even Jesus. For God's great peace to find a place in our hearts, we actually have to get out of the way. We have to let the Holy Spirit do the work of cleansing us of all our unrighteousness, and we have to confess and repent. And I, these are all words that we use to describe giving our life to Jesus, but they're also the process by which we come to know true peace. And that's worth more than any amount of control that we might ever want. Now, moving into the final section of the psalm, the poet called out to the Lord again. And twice this time, we saw it several, I think it was five times last time. Twice this time, this is still a matter of emphasis. That's how Hebrew poetry works. You see something repeated, it's emphasizing it. They seem to have recognized their need for the Lord's deliverance. They wanted to bring the psalm to a close by admitting their need, by emphasizing it. And this is something that we often admit to, but do we really acknowledge it in our lives? Do we acknowledge it in our congregation? Do we live our everyday lives with a consistent awareness of our need for the Lord's deliverance, for the Lord's providence? And do we call out to the Lord as a result? Or do we turn to other things? Do we lean into Jesus or do we tend to rely on our own ability? And the psalmist called out, called out to the Lord because they had been through the darkness of the exile. They had been slaves in a far foreign country. They'd been delivered, and they knew that they were desperately in need of the Lord's continued providence. I think maybe part of our problem, 
might just be that we have it too good. What I mean by that is that we have it just good enough to be able to make it by without thinking or feeling we need God's help. So we try that. Because we're independent nature. We're self-reliant. We don't like the idea of needing anyone. And we live in a culture that has made all of those things a reality. But what we read in Scripture paints a very different picture. We may think we can manage things on our own, but the truth is that when we do, sooner or later, it will all come crashing down. At some point, our, at some point, our strength, our ability will fail. Our power will break, and we will be forced to face the reality that we can't live life alone. Genesis 1.27 and 2.18 cleared that up at the very beginning, in fact. The Lord made male and female because he decided that it was not good for man to be alone. We are created to be in community with God and then with each other and then with creation. We are meant to live in and move and have our being through these relationships. The psalmist saw their need for the Lord and called out to him. And based on how the psalm ends, it seems they also recognize their need for both creation and the other sheep. If you look at verse 176, the last verse, the poet claimed to have gone astray like a lost sheep. Now, what causes sheep to go astray? Other than the fact that they're not very bright, which we've talked about in the past. Well, sheep follow the food source. They follow the grass or weeds or whatever it is. And they eat, and they mosey a bit, and they eat some more, and they mosey a bit, and they eat some more. They don't pay attention, and before too long, they're separated from the herd. But it's their relationship with both creation and the other sheep that's in view here in this verse. See, the sheep that wanders off, they let their appetite govern where they went, and they ended up lost and alone. And we need to not only pay attention to where we are being led by the Lord, our shepherd, but to where the other sheep are and to what it is we are taking in. There's so many applications here that I could probably talk for hours, uh, but just let me offer two quick observations about what is being said in this final line. First, it seems like it's entirely possible for sheep who have God as their shepherd to go astray. I don't think this means that we can lose our salvation. I don't think that's what this is talking about. Because it also seems clear that when the sheep go astray, the shepherd will go after the lost sheep and bring them back. We know that also from the parables that Jesus told in Matthew 18 and in Luke 15, saying that that's exactly what he would do. It does mean, however, that we can get off course. And there are a number of reasons for this. Whether we just sort of mindlessly wander away or we're led away by something specific, we can get lost. Not in terms of salvation, but in terms of following the way of Jesus. We can lose our focus and get tangled up in the bushes of 
culture and politics and conspiracies and all the things going on. And if so, we need to call out for our shepherd to come and bring us back to the herd. This is just another reason none of us should be trying to follow Jesus on our own. The second thing, though, is that the psalmist claimed that they had not forgotten the commandments. This seems to indicate that we can know right from wrong and still get lost. Now, I'm not sure entirely how this happens, but if I had to guess, so this is just a guess, I would say that for us it has to do with people who know Jesus and what it means to follow him but get off into some sort of specific theological sidetrack and end up getting lost in it. Now I've known people, as an example, who believe that we have free will and people who believe that we have are predestined. Those things clash and I've watched them get into knockdown dragouts about which one is right. I've even taken part in a few myself. Some folks are so invested in that that they think the other group is unsaved. But Jesus didn't say that belief in free will or predestination will save us. Jesus said he would save us. Which means instead of trusting in any specific theological stance about the nature or order of salvation, we can simply trust that Jesus will save us because he said he would. And exactly how that happens can remain a mystery. Or maybe there's some truth in both the free will and the predestination view. I honestly don't know. I used to care about it a lot, but not so much now. What I do know is that Jesus has never failed me yet. In spite of all my doubts and everything that I've gone through and still go through, the older I get, the more I lean out of all the arguments, all the sidetracks, and into the Holy Spirit. I'm trying to talk less and listen more. And that sounds weird because I'm the one up here talking. But in my daily life, I'm trying to talk less and listen more. To God first and foremost, but also to my fellow sheep, to all of us, and, and the ones who've written books and other things, and preachers, and I'm trying to listen to my fellow sheep, and then to creation as well. I think we can learn a lot from creation if we just listen, take it in. Listening to God and others seems pretty straightforward, that, that part. Listening to God, I think we know kind of what that looks like. Listening to each other, I think we know what that looks like. But let me clarify what I mean by listening to creation real quick. After I left the monastery a couple weeks ago uh, on my retreat, I went up and I hiked at a place called Zapata Falls. And uh, it's not a long hike, but it is pretty steep. And you can hear the stream long before you see it. And once you reach the stream, you can hear the falls before you see them. But once you, you make your way sort of into this giant fissure in the rock face of Mount Blanca, you walk through the water of the stream and around a couple of curves in the fissure and you find this hidden gem. It's a double 
waterfall, like an upper falls and then a lower falls. <clears throat> the upper falls is about 25 feet. So it's not huge, but it's impressive. The lower falls is about five feet. It's kind of smaller. And the water is all snow melt that makes its way down through the fissure from above. It's clear and it's extremely cold. But you have to walk through it to see the falls. So you carefully make your way from rock to rock in ankle high water. And then at the falls, the water gets a bit deeper. And you were rewarded for your effort with an experience I can't even rightfully describe. I think creation will guide us to the Creator every single time. Just as the psalm has. And when it does, we can sing our praises to the Lord seven times a day or more as we enjoy what He has made.